The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Dr. Joanna LaPrade, is a psychotherapist and adjunct professor at Colorado College, where she teaches courses in Jungian and archetypal psychology. And she's the author of Forged in Darkness, The Many Paths of Personal Transformation. Her essay, The Ascent, appears in the November-December 2022 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Joanna LaPrade, welcome to Spirituality and Health Podcast. Mm, thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. I'm very interested in all things Jungian and archetypal, mm. and your book was just fascinating. Mm. And, you know, it opens with an intriguing confession mm. about your passion for the underworld beneath the surface of things. And I'm just going to read back to you what you wrote to us. Mm. So you write, I became a depth psychologist because I wanted to engage with myself and others in complex, creative, and meaningful ways to look beneath the surface and see and feel what is actually going on in the psyche. Mm. So as I read this, I almost screamed aloud and I said, yeah, what the <laughs> hell is going on in the psyche? You know, I don't even know what the psyche is. Mm. And, and and how does it differ from, you know, the me that's looking at the psyche? What's the difference between the observer and the observed here? So I wanted to start out and have you, as simply as you can, tell us what the psyche is and, like you said, what is going on in there. It's mm, a great question and, and a very big one. You know, my my discipline that I come from, as you mentioned, is Jungian. So I'll answer that question from the Jungian perspective. And, you know, in some ways I'd want to split it into two things. The The Jungian composite of the psyche is very complex. There's an enormous amount of psychodynamics, meaning kind of this part of ourselves relates to this part of ourselves and building this kind of matrix of language really around what we experience as inner self. And there is that dimension to the psyche or to psychological understanding. And I think one of the things that makes the Jungian framework unique and probably makes someone like you really drawn to it is that the Jungian framework has an enormous spiritual lean in the sense that the psyche is also the Jungian word for that part of ourself that is larger and greater than the kind of small personal identity and structures and informs our lives. And so we, we kind of try to get into navigating the parts of ourselves that are associated with our personal experience and, and 
label them and relate them to other parts of ourselves, but all of that is really held in the word psyche as as the representation of what Jung would call the self with a capital S, which is really the archetype of wholeness. And from an analytical perspective, we have a lot of words for that archetype. We Some call it God, some call it spirit, some call it the divine, the totality, the great mystery, the psyche. It's, it's ultimately the part of ourselves that is larger than who we are. So when I use the word psyche, I'm talking about all of that together, the kind of mix of our own personal inner world and how we can kind of organize that and make that conscious through various words and phenomenon that we can describe in ourselves and this kind of larger informing self that that represents the the really totality of our beings. And so it gets kind of big in that way. So... Do we each have our own psyche, or is there one psyche uh, that we all share, and, mm. and and we tap into it in different ways? Our individuality is, ex- or or or, you know, Rami is an individual expression of mm-hmm. the cosmic psyche, and Joanna is a different in- expression of the cosmic psyche. You know, I I would say at least in the Jungian tradition, it's the latter. It's that you know we are our individual eyes are these small expressions, and they live them out. So they're not small, right? Of this larger totality. And you know, in the in the Jungian world, Jung is, or in the analytical world, excuse me, Jung is unique in in taking analytical psychology from this this space that said, yeah, we've got this part of ourselves that we call the unconscious and it's where we put all the parts of ourselves that are really hard for us to be within. It's kind of our depository of that, which we don't want to acknowledge in ourselves or maybe don't fit in our lives or in our civilization or in our norms, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And Jung said, yeah, we've got that piece. We've got that kind of personal unconscious, but also there seems to be this wellspring of of a much more collective nature, right? And this is the the warehouse of the archetypal energies where we we see these incredible phenomenon repeat in all psyches over and over again throughout time and epoch and culture. And yes, the individuality like you're speaking to is a unique, the expression of, you know, mother or war or or wholeness or light. It takes on different images as we have our own cultural and personal relationship to that idea, but the form itself is larger than that, right? It repeats in all psyches, it's more collective. And so this is, I think, where Jung and this approach to understanding ourselves enters into that latter category where we really are a small part of a much larger collective or cosmic energy that seems to have very specific forms that get shared with all of us. And I think the Jungian approach, and specifically the archetypal approach, is the attempt to get at those energies and see our life informed through those perspectives. Do you think the psyche predates the the, the human being? That the, the mm. yeah cosmic consciousness yeah. Ar- arrives before individual consciousness. I mean, as a as a subjective answer, I would say yes. You know, I think nature is that, you know, I mm. think the, the, the weavings of our planet are that, you know, the, 
you know, you can see, you know, a great image of that for me is, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a murmur of swallows. And this, you know, these, these birds will move in these incredibly intricate, you know, ways that look like, I mean, something that of course comes out of whatever AI now, but that all these birds are moving in one rhythm together. They're responding to something and there are thousands and thousands of them. And, you know, I think nature in its most pure form is psyche and, Jung's later work really moves in this direction. He got really into metaphysics. He got really into the work of Wolfgang Pauli. And I think his his understanding of that kind of personal psyche really started to fall away for him. And he started to play with ideas of much more interconnection and synchronicities and this idea that we're all really connected in a very deep way on a kind of plane of existence that our minds don't let us tap into. I get the sense, both from reading Forged in Darkness, but also from reading your essay in Spirituality and Health, The Ascent, that, and maybe I'm, I don't think I'm projecting because I, I agree with what I'm about to say, but that the, the, oh, the, your passion for the underworld Mm-hmm. is due to the fact that you think this this psyche is where not only all the energy is for, for mm-hmm. the human being, but maybe reclaiming that energy or reconnecting to that larger level of, of consciousness is crucial to human survival. Yeah, 100%. It's beautifully said. I think it's completely essential. And, you know when we encounter that part of ourselves, you know, whether it's through dreams or prayer or meditation or the many, many ways that people tap into that archetypal space in them where all the energy of life really is, it's enormously fueling for our beings. And I think in a lot of ways, people are afraid of that encounter. You know, Jung would call that numinosity, right? Which is for the Lat- from the Latin numen meaning God. And it's kind of the idea of that really, the encounter, the direct encounter with some energetic presence that is larger than you and how fueling and how sustaining that has been. And that has always been sustaining for the human, for the human journey. And, you know, I think it's very important to, to point out that, you know, we, as at least in the Western mind, there is a overlap between kind of losing our connection with land, with traditional ways of living, with traditional systems of spirituality and religion and community. And we kind of moved out of these containers. We moved into cities. We got, you know, we industrialized ourselves. We got busy. We got disconnected and we invented psychology and called ourselves sick. And those two things happen at the same time in our history. And I think that pulling into the depths of ourselves and our lives is also the pulling back to that sustaining source of energy. So I want to talk to you, I want to ask you about how we lose that. Hmm. And I want to give you two examples. I have a soon-to-be seven-year-old grandson. And a couple of years ago, we, we go for walks in this forest and there's lots of rocks and he likes to climb on the rocks. And his, his dad found him sitting on a flat rock, mm-hmm. sitting cross-legged and his eyes closed, sitting like in a, in a meditation pose. 
his eyes closed, his legs are crossed, his hands are in a namaste position. Mm-hmm. He's like five. <laughs> he and knows. And his, his dad says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm thinking. And he said, who taught you to do that? And he said, oh, my brain taught me. Mm. And, and he has this intrinsic, now I'm reading into it, but he sort of just knew intrinsically how to tap into this larger reality. That, that's example one. Example two is a friend of mine who has, her, her grandson isn't even one year old yet, and he has been introduced to like drumming circles or you know, mm. whatever, you know, drumming. And when the drums are being beaten, he falls into this rhythmic dance, mm. totally in sync with the drum. Mm. And he's just, you know, I, I don't, I mean, the only word I have for it is davening. He's sort of doing this, mm-hmm. this prayer dance, mm-hmm. you know, in rhythm to the drums. No one taught him to do that. Mm-hmm. He's just, his body is just responding to the drum the way my grandson's I don't know what you call it. His his mind is just responding to the the cosmic mm. mind. I'm I'm totally mm. projecting here, mm. but how? Assuming that that I'm picking up on some truth. Yeah, sure. That as little kids we are intrinsically attuned to this this larger mind. How do we get? How did we lose that? Mm. It's a great question, and you know I think the the ultimate. <laughs> How do I say it? It's like, you know, ultimately, I think it's ego formation that splits that in us. And, you know, the, the, which is a, which is kind of this double-edged sword because the lack of ego from a psychological perspective is called psychosis. And so it's not that we're after the end of the ego, which I think, you know, is, is a position that, I think psychology and Buddhism have kind of blended on and now we're confused about what ego is. And when I say ego, it's what I mean is the ego is the self-aware part of the psyche that is responsible for continuity of identity. And so the ego discerns and it separates. And in that faculty, we gain the enormous privilege and containing privilege to say, I am separate, I do this, I like this, I am this. And we become these singular entities. And that gives us a lot of stability and it gives us the, the capacity, right, to think in I. But the price of that is that with that discernment comes a separation, and a separation from, you know, I would, I would use the word psyche or unconscious, you know, some would use the word spirit or God or nature or that kind of imaginal symbolic holding of that cosmic energy that you're speaking to. And, you know, a lot of the work, I think, of the Jungian approach specifically is this what Jung would call the relativization of the ego, which is a fancy word for saying the ego, that part of us that is pulling out, that's, that says to your grandson, like, no, you can't just be there. You, you're thinking about it and you've got to do this and then you've got to do that. And then you've got to go off and do this. That starts getting us busy with building the kind of temporal life that we all have to exist in, that it's taking that I and and softening it, right, is 
having it learn the often painful lesson, which I think is is very often for people a very underworld moment where they learn the ego is not the master of their house. And what does it mean to serve a different part of yourself? And how do you notice that in yourself? You know, how do we all get back to those children that just let themselves flow into who they are? And so much of what is asked of us as adults to belong and make money and be consistent and pay our taxes and answer our phones and all the things that, you know, busy up and fill us in, pull us out of connection with that space. And in those moments where, you know, you're sitting in nature being, you're distracting the ego, you're letting something else be in a part of you or you know, dance and drums and the rhythm of that, that, that kind of take over and almost like a snake charmer, like calm that, you know, thought provoking, analytical meaning making part of the psyche and just let something else come through. And that's a real practice. And I think a lot of people spend, you know, a lot of time trying to get back to those places that the young have, you know, baked in easy access to. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the differences between Freud and Jung regarding this, what we're talking about, is Freud saw mysticism or this kind of spirituality as a regression, a loss of the Mm -hmm. self. Whereas my limited understanding of Jung, he saw it as as a growth, a transformation, moving from the egoic eye to the I don't know, cosmic I am, Yeah, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, my favorite little antidote that I, uh, someone once told me about Jung, obviously I wasn't there, but it's written somewhere and I'm sorry I'm blanking where, but when somebody overheard Jung in his later life in a, in a, you know, in a session with one of his clients and he said, I'm not interested in your mother, I'm interested in your cosmic soul. <laughs> And it's that, right? Like, I mean, and like I said, I think it's just a funny story, but, but yeah, that, that play on, I'm, I'm interested in the great, the great self with a capital S and how your, what is your relationship with it? Right, right. Which is so, I would say, desperately needed at this moment in in human history. We're so disconnected from the well, you could you could you could change it. And say, I'm not interested in your mother. I'm interested in the mother. One hundred percent. That's the perfect frame of it. Yeah, yeah. In that in that cosmic, in those deep archetypes that connect us mm-hmm. to cosmic consciousness, mm-hmm. which brings us back to the book. So let, let's not forget that we want to talk a little bit about forged in darkness, the many paths of personal transformation. You know, like many, if not most, I don't know. I'm not an expert here, but like. Most Jungians in the West, you you draw your archetypes in the book from Greek mythology. Yeah. And I'm wondering why that is. I mean, I used to hang out, and when I lived in Los Angeles, I would hang out at the Jung Center mm. and spent a lot of time in the bookstore looking at things I couldn't afford. And, <laughs> and you know, there were so many books by James Hillman and, and all these, these amazing writers looking at the impact of you know, the archetypes, but they're all Greek gods and mm-hmm. goddesses. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I have no connection to those mm. cultural figures. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is, is there a reason why there's a mm-hmm. tendency to focus on the Greeks? And are, are there Jungian books that use 
Native American figures mm-hmm. or Hindu Kabbalistic mm-hmm. other, or other, you know, Tibetan figures? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a good question. And, you know, I think in some way, the simplest answer is that there's this, and I don't know if it's accurate, to be honest, but belief that the kind of Western mind comes from that mythology oh. and focuses on that because of that. Jung himself is, who's an enormously prolific writer and in, you know, most of his literature, like The Symbolic Life, Alchemical Studies, Mysterium Conjunctus, like those books, he ranges all the mythic disciplines. And, you know, as do, you know, semi-Jungians that follow him, like Joseph Campbell. And, you know, for me in writing Forged in Darkness, the, the first iteration of this book was my doctoral dissertation. And, in that one of the, I think for me, it was finding literature that I could build on. And there is your, your assessment is correct. Like a majority of the Jungian writing is in the Greek pantheon. And, um, also for me in my own personal writing, it's, it was in that form, ultimately a narrowing where I, I didn't have the capacity nor the energy to study, you know, every, every religion's mythic religion or mythic cultural exploration of, of, you know, the underworld space. But I think that that's an enormous lacuna in the field. And this, there is a huge emphasis on the Greek world. And I think it's because it's easier for a large part of the Western mind to kind of imagine into I think it's also a religion and a religious system that is not something that's easier to handle psychologically because it's not very active in the sense that, you know, I'm, and, I, and I'm not entirely sure about this, but I think there are a lot of people that are not practicing like traditional Orphic cults or, you know, that in some ways it's become an academic religion and that we can kind of study it rather than live and breathe it as many of the, you know, many other religions are. But, you know, I'm not sure if I have a a really, really good understanding outside of, I think the tradition has done it. And so it's easy to build on it. No, I think that's an important point. I hadn't thought of it, but if you took biblical characters and and some people do, I, I imagine. I mean, I've, I've actually done this in a couple of cases. But if you take biblical characters and you do a, a, you know, a, a Jungian reading of these characters, <laughs> you're going to get people who go to synagogue and say, wait a minute, that's not, you know, that's not yeah. what we teach in the synagogue. And then yeah. you're up against a living tradition and you're trying to say, oh, I know, I'm just using these characters. Well, you're not allowed to do that. Totally. So yeah, I, I get it. So yeah, so stick with the Greeks because no one cares. <laughs> There's no, you know, Greek anti-defamation league that's going to come after you. Sure. And and also I think the, you know, the multitude of, especially in Hillman's writing, the multitude of the the Greek pantheon aligns well with the psychic representation, right? That we all have these kind of you know, different parts of ourselves that inhabit our inner world and that they oftentimes are really complex and really contradictory. And the, you know, the poly nature of the pantheon allows for that. It allows for an exploration of, you know, these kind of opposing parts of ourselves that, you know, you have 
take any of these, you know, any, all the deities, they have this incredible polarity, like, you know, Dionysus, who is the god of feasting and ecstasy and the kind of instinctive and the consumptive. And he's also the god of fasting. And he's the only man that sleeps with one woman or God who sleeps with one woman. And so he has these enormous paradoxes and exploring that paradox psychologically allows us to imagine into the paradoxes in ourselves. And that's useful. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. That, that makes sense. I, I want to talk a little bit with you about the power of initiation. Because mm. you write about that in the book. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, well, first of all, you can tell us about the importance of initiation as you understand it. And then if it troubles you, because it troubles me, that there really, we don't have... Mm-hmm. True spiritual initiation in in modern or postmodern society. I mean, I mean, we have, you know, we have in Judaism, you have a bar and bat mitzvah. Mm-hmm. But if those were ever deep initiations into what it is to be a man and a woman, they're not that anymore. It seems to me the only initiations we have in at least American society get initiated into a cult or to a gang, mm-hmm. into the military, into the fraternity, and all of these have an element of violence around them. So so what do you think about the power of initiation and how important it is and how we might get back to that in a in a sane way? Well, it's such a good question and it's such a hard one to answer in our culture. You know, I think in its simplest form, I think initiation is the experience of you know in of really of an of a death within where, you know, the, the initiate walks to a threshold and recognizes that something is being let go of. And it might be the old life or the young life or, you know, whatever it is and crosses that threshold and is recognized by their community as, as reborn, as somebody of a different caliber. And, I think an initiatory encounter helps us contain the enormousness of what some of life's thresholds ask of us. And they tell us how it was done before. And they tell us that we are a part of something that is happening in the future and it gives us belonging. And, you know, this, this loss leaves a lot of people enormously isolated. It leaves us disconnected from tradition and disconnected from guidance. And what ends up happening, in my own opinion, is that thus the the task of making one's life meaning becomes up to the individual alone. And for a lot of people, that's an enormous weight that they don't know how to navigate. And so they distract or pull back or get angry or get violent or get lost. And they don't know you know, what is happening them in them is ultimately the need to recognize a life change. 
and be honored in that, right? And and become more in that. And there's a, I don't know if you've ever read Iron John by Robert Bly. Yeah. You know, a beautiful book that talks so much about the the importance of initiation in young men in our culture and what's happening as, you know, so many young men take this incredible energy that is, you know, the divine masculine, the solar masculine, and they don't know where to put it. And it's not taught to manifest in a positive way or a powerful way. And instead it rages and it gets angry and we see violence and we see all of this explosion of psyche really that that is lacking the meaningful and symbolic containment that you know we as a human psyche are really actually very accustomed to you know the psyche is an old thing it's like the body it hasn't caught up to our sterile unritualized busy lives it wants some deeper containment some deeper understanding and you know, how to get back to that is a really hard question. And it's a really complex question in our culture. One you're not going to answer. Well, I mean, I can, <laughs> one, I, one, one I humbly have no answer for, but I would, you know, I, I think it's, it's all connected to what we're talking about needing to have our I mean, our own relationship with the deeper processes in life. If you, yeah. you know, if, yeah, if I tell you what, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to push you to answer it <laughs> yet. I'm going to, I'm going to ask it again Great. <laughs> in a slightly different way. Okay, and, maybe I'll know that answer. <laughs> right. And, and see if, if, if this, if this helps at all, because I'm cognizant of, of our time and we're coming oh, sure. to the end, but your your book closes with the notion that the individual descent into darkness mm-hmm. is, if I remember right, you say it's both heartbreaking and healing. Yeah. And you say that nobody, now I am quoting you, you say no, no one chooses to descend into the abyss, close quote. No one chooses to descend into the abyss. It, it happens to us. Mm-hmm. And my, this is just personal, but my sense is that as a species, humanity is descending into an abyss, a sort of dark night of the soul, a crucifixion of modern and postmodern civilization. I'd like to know if you think that, if, if this is true, that if, if as a species we're entering into this dark night of, of the soul, mm-hmm. how Jungian insight, how books like Forged in Darkness might help us gate the madness, not only the madness that's happening, mm-hmm. but I think the madness that's yet to come. Mm-hmm. How, how might your work and work of other Jungians guide us through this, this deepening darkness? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it's about attitude. And, you know, to, to that, to the quote that you read from the book, it's, it is this happening, right? That, that is happening to us culturally. And one of the things that is very different about the way that this depth approach to the psyche handles the hard, the impossible, the painful is that it tells us, yeah, this is something that's happening to you. And it might be happening to you for a reason that you don't yet understand. Yet it is before you. And also, it is something that has a message for you. It's trying to teach you something. It's, you know, 
what Jung would call the treasure hard to attain, or the Bible calls the pearl of great price, that there is something of value in this. And we, as a culture, are taught that discomfort is bad. It's like, get get better, get fixed, be comfortable, have things look nice, have things stay on the surface. That's what quality of life is. Have things be happy. And so for many of us, I think when the impossible seems to happen to us, we're surprised. And well, what did I do wrong? And I'm a good person or why me? And in these questions that try desperately to put us back on the surface to keep us comfortable. And we need an attitude that says, yeah, the deep and the dark happen in life. And how do we face them? What does it mean to face them? And for each of us, how that unfolds, that facing might be really different. But the attitude that says, in the deep and dark, there is really hard things that also gift us change. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I can speak to this enormously in my personal life. I witness it every single day in my practice. And, you know, I have yet to see, and I'm, and I'm, I'm there to be corrected on this, but I have yet to see anybody that speaks of an awakening in themselves that they became more of who they were or fuller in who they were that happened when they were comfortable and they were in the surface. I haven't seen it happen. The dark stretches us and it makes us uncomfortable and it breaks things open. You know, an initiation is of that fold. It's a stretching of one's being so that something more larger, more whole, more empowered can emerge. And, you know, we don't like to have things change in our culture and we don't like to be uncomfortable and our world, our nature is rising up and we can look at our phones and look at our other modes of distraction and try not to be present for it, but it doesn't mean we're not falling into the abyss. And so it becomes really essential to ask yourself, well, what does that mean to you? When you find yourself in the place where the lights go out, how do you understand that experience? And I think the Jungian tradition and my book being, you know, a tiny little drop in that great ocean says, you begin by saying, what's going on here? You know, why, what is this here to teach me? What is available to me in this? What is it trying to show me rather than how do I get out of this immediately? That is the perfect place to end. Mm -hmm. Don't escape the dark, explore it and see what it has to offer. Yeah, because ultimately, like I said, it's not going anywhere. And if it's happening in your life, it's happening. So your pills or your avoidance or the many ways that we try to make that not happen doesn't actually change what's before you. Yeah, there is there is no escape. Yeah, <laughs> there is no escape. There is no escape. Our guest today, Joanna LaPrade, is the author of Forged in Darkness, The Many Paths of Personal Transformation. Her essay, The Ascent, appears in the November-December 2022 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Joanna, thanks so much for being with us on the Spirituality and Health podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's always an honor. Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Brenna Lilly. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health magazine, please become one 
at spiritualityhealth.com. From everyone at Spirituality Health Magazine, we wish you a purposeful new year. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. My name is Nadia Dela Cruz, and I started the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast to explore spiritual topics like manifestation and meditation with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.